How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Dead Jester Productions podcast. I'm your host, Josh or J. Moskers, and this is episode 144. Wonderful guest this week, Frankie Camposano. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Pretty good, pretty good. Why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself and what you do? Get them introduced. Yeah, so uh, I'm a writer and comedian. Um, I'll throw a filmmaker in there too. I I like to do a little bit of everything. I, I primarily uh, really write comedy. That's kind of my, my bread and butter, but I also do music videos. I guest on podcasts. I'm really spending a lot of time this year trying to, as corny as this sounds like, diversify my portfolio and try to have just more <laughs> stuff that I'm doing than than just scripts. So uh, this year for the first time, I'm getting into uh, making comics with friends, really talented artists who bring my words to life and uh, make them way more engaging of a product than, you know, just like I said, just a script. So, yeah, yeah, I like to do a little bit of everything and I, it's all it's all pretty much funny. I don't uh, a little bit of horror, but nothing like I can't do prestige drama. I, I never really could. And now, especially these days, I go to entertainment myself for relief and comedy and to escape from everything. And so that's kind of the same approach that I take to my own stuff. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I, I definitely feel you as far as diversifying what you're working on, which is what I try to do. But I also work another 70 hours a week and then on top of that, taking care of family. So my schedule gets pretty packed, but it's yeah, but, uh, it's this is all like my, my passion stuff, too. I do have a I have yeah. a real full time job in the entertainment industry. That's not creative. <laughs> yeah, it's I don't know. It, I say I don't have downtime, but a lot of times in that downtime is when I'm working on the things I really enjoy. Yeah, so it's, totally. It's, it's both. Yeah, you do. I guess we'll, we'll start out with the, the how did you get into this? How did you start? with all the writing and, and everything you're doing now with comedy. I've always just kind of seen myself as a writer. My parents tell this story when I was a kid, I would be, I would collect action figures, superheroes, Bionicle, you know, the whole, the whole gamut. Mm -hmm. uh, and people, my friends would come over to hang out. And these, again, like kids, I'll say like three, four five years old. Uh, and I would, I would play with a friend and I'd have to say, here's, here's what's going on in, in the storyline. Here's, I need to catch <laughs> you up on the canon. And my parents were like, well, who is this kid? Like, what do we do with this? Um, and I just I was into that kind of stuff. I was into those like long form storytelling and character arcs and all that kind of stuff in mm -hmm. my own like free time and, and pretend games that over time led itself to like, I, I think they're all white from the Internet, but like Bionicle fan fiction and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'd always loved Batman. That led me to Teen Titans. That led me to mainstream comics that led me to, you know, non superhero stuff. And so it's always kind of been a thing that I've. I've come back to in terms of just writing and creating. And then it took me a little, a little bit to find that comedy lane. I always kind of saw myself as a, as a class clown and a, a goofster or whatever. Um, but I knew, I only knew the writing part at first. So in high school, I God, I don't know where this came from, but I, I wrote like a 120,000 word novel and it was this 16-year-old's take on a Christopher Nolan movie. It was dramatic and action adventure and spies and all this stuff. And it wasn't funny at all. It was it was deadly serious. And I kind of just took a step back. I was like, this doesn't even feel true to me. Like I, I'm glad I did it, but this isn't my style. And so then I kind of went full in on on comedy when I when I went to college and I was I had a comedy radio show. I wrote for the school paper doing a, a humor column. I did, um, we had a student television show that, that aired on local public access and I got to be the showrunner for that. And 
nice. work in kind of like a, a mini a mini writer's room and uh, work on film projects as a film student. And everything I did was comedic, um, except for one time I, I did try to do in my senior year. I tried to do just a non non comedic horror film, and uh, it was it was pretty prescient. It was based on a creepypasta that now feels very COVID era and pandemic isolation influenced, but this was before everything. And again, that one's just not funny at all. So I looked back and I was like, this is, it's just not me. And I never did anything with it. Cause I just had, I was trying something different. And every time I step out of that comedy zone, it just doesn't feel true to, mm. to my voice and my style. Yeah. I remember writing when I was in, I guess it would have been middle school a lot more. I had a lot more free time then. And, uh, Every I know every day in study hall, I would be writing, and one of my my classmates would also do the same, and we'd go back and forth, and we'd share notes and everything. And I remember he would, at the time, my vocabulary was not as established as I have it now, and he would. Have you ever heard? Uh, what is it called? Oh, it's um, the inheritance series. Or, I forgot what it's yeah, called. Yeah, yeah. Ar- Aragon. Yeah, yeah. Little, the first one. He was basically rewriting that book. Like subconsciously, he didn't realize it, and I was like, "All right, let's let's touch this up a bit. You help me with my my vocabulary. I'll help you not, <laughs> you know, steal the entire plot of this book we enjoy." <laughs> yeah, and that's but, one of those things that you learn more as you as you get more experience. That you just have to steal from two or three <laughs> things at a time, and now you've made yeah. something original. <laughs> There's that, and then you talking about having like a a canon regards yeah. to like you playing with the action figures. I absolutely relate to that. And I don't know, my parents would walk in and be like, I don't understand what's happening here. Why are the Power Rangers fighting with like the Zoids or whatever? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm like, it, you wouldn't understand. It's it's pretty high tier narrative going on here. <laughs> that For me, it got to a point where I would be taking characters from other toy lines to like sub in as characters that were never going to get a toy of their own. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or I'd be like seeking out char- like figures from shows or series that I didn't even care about because it's like, well, that, that guy could kind of be, you know, this tertiary teen Titan that is never going to, yeah. it wasn't in the show. So we'll never get a toy, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting watching as, as we get older. Like I know I can only say about myself, I guess, but even though a lot of what I do changes the core foundations of like my interests and how I, you know, interact with my hobbies is sort of the same. If anything, you were mentioning how like you carried the like whole enjoyment of creating narratives, you know, into your writing and everything like that. I kind of do the same with my content and the stuff I write, you know, and my artwork and stuff like that. How did you, how were you able to finally channel that into a career as opposed to a hobby? Well, I, it, it came piecemeal and I'd say I'm still in the process of doing it. So mm-hmm. part of that was, you know, I had written that novel. I knew I needed to go to school. I needed to get a degree. I needed to eventually pay bills. So I was like, what do I, how do I do this? What, how do I turn this, you know, goofy, but serious novel into anything? And I thought, okay, well, I could get an English degree and um, probably become an English teacher, which I love every English teacher I've ever had. They've been really formative to my experience and, and my career now. But I knew if I was going to be an English teacher, maybe there's a lot of different things I wanted to do before that. So I said, okay, I'm not going to do an English degree, but I want to write like that. What are the other writing degrees? And that kind of brought me to screenwriting and had me approach filmmaking from a a creative perspective rather than a consumer perspective for the first time. And I thought, well, screenwriting is just as hard to make it 
if not harder than, you know, prose. But if I sell one script, I'm going to make a lot more money than I would if I publish one book. Like that's, that's just where the audience is. And so that kind of had me going full in on a, a screenwriting degree. And then I did still minor in English and do poetry because I wanted to do something that would be impossible to make any sort of money on. Um, but all those kinds of disciplines started to feed back and forth. The, the experience I had from prose and poetry gave me a perspective on the screenwriting that the other screenwriting students didn't have. Or, you know, there were very few students who kind of crossed over from the film school and the English department. Um, I kind of found a niche there that I was able to draw on both disciplines. And when I graduated, all of that kind of went to the wayside. It was like, okay, how do I, how do I, again, pay, now it's time to pay bills and pay rent and live an adult life. And so I, I met with an alumni from my school who uh, worked as a temp to perm recruiter. And I said, I just want to use my degree. I have this expensive liberal arts degree. I have a mountain of student loan debt, anything that feels remotely relevant that I couldn't have just jumped into without having put in the time. That's where I want to go. And she placed me at an executive search firm, which was a space that I knew nothing about. Again, I, stu I studied screenwriting and poetry. I didn't study HR. I didn't study recruiting. All that was a very foreign world to me. But obviously, I, I like to talk. And the job was to talk to people and then to talk to other people about the conversations that we have. Mm -hmm. And I could do that. And that was, a you know, it's a... I wouldn't say it's a lucrative career, but it's not bad. You know, it's not physical labor or anything like that. I, um, I took to it pretty quickly, but I knew that I wanted to be in the entertainment industry. And so that kind of began a long journey of, of because I was in the executive search space and I learned how to read a resume, how to interview, what the path of a successful executive looked like. I could kind of take all that in through osmosis, uh, through <laughs> studying and research and then apply it to my own career with the goal of, yeah, if I could become an executive in a creative space, cool, but I really just want to be the creative. So I used that to kind of channel into the, the career moves that I made. So I, I left that executive search job and I went to Sony Pictures Classics in New York, which is um, the art house, indie film, international side of Sony. They did Call Me By Your Name and The Rider and um, a lot of really amazing films, all the Pedro Almodovar films. Sorry, Pedro. Um, very cool stuff that that I would have never had exposure to, and like it was it was a, kind of a um, like a master class in this prestige level of the film industry that I really didn't have much exposure to at all as as kind of just a consumer. It elevated my tastes in a lot of ways and it exposed me to a whole different side of the industry that just doesn't get you know the non blockbuster side of it really. Yeah. But there I was just saying the names of movies as I called mom and pop theater chains to pay their unpaid bills. So nothing sexy. It wasn't it, I was in the industry, but not really. And I knew I needed to keep moving. And that kind of brought me to NBC Universal, where I am now, um, but back on the executive search side, because I realized I could take these different experiences that I had working in the entertainment industry in kind of less sexy roles and um, working in executive search and trying to help folks launch their careers or build their careers. And um, combining the two was perfect for me because I already read Deadline and uh, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, all that just in my spare time. I'm interested and knowledgeable about, you know, just like we we're talking about the deep layers of canon to whatever like game mm -hmm. I'm playing, I still store all that knowledge of, oh, this studio has 
works with these partners and has these properties and blah, 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 blah. All that's yeah. just in my brain. So like, if I could use that for my job, that's, that's great. It's not just dead weight in my, on my mind. Um, and I also knew that the next step was getting out to LA, getting out of New York and, and moving West. And so NBC Universal really represented an opportunity to do that because I could get in there in a function that I'd already worked, put my head down, do the job, make friends, make connections. The actual act of doing the corporate recruiting would introduce me to entertainment industry executives and the people that we ultimately don't hire are still going to be out there in the industry. So it was a way to not have to, you know, put myself out there constantly and, and do networking events or whatever, but still just have a steady flow of new connections getting made. And I joined six months before the pandemic, went remote, then switched to the West Coast team, came out here. And now finally, three years in, I'm really able to say, okay, I've, I've built credibility with my team. I've built credibility across the company. Here's what I'm about as a creative. Here's what I'm trying to do. And so the, the like pie chart of focus goes from being all in on the day job because I need to learn and I need to prove myself to now the other stuff starts to take the driver's seat, I guess, yeah. um, because I've earned that credibility and I've earned that trust that they know I'm, I'm not playing hooky, you know, when I'm working remote mm -hmm. or whatever, like the job gets done, but I have this other passion that I can finally put in the spotlight. Nice. I think it helps too, like in any field to know all, all the sides of it. Like you mentioned, you know, working the, the jobs that aren't necessarily as focused on the things you'd be more passionate about. I think it, in the in the long run, it can help having that information. At least I know my with my experience working in marketing, uh, like I I work with businesses helping to sell their products, whereas in previous positions I worked with like universities, and you know I was in charge of like purchasing and I worked with the you know professors and things like that, and I learned the ins and outs of what like the university side of things and the products like that. Whereas now I'm working on actually getting the products and selling it to people, and I and working with different businesses and things like that. So like I'm, I've been on the side of the consumer and you know, the, the bot, the seller, I guess you could yeah. say. I'm yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the, a lot with, with what I do. Exactly. I'm kind of doing the same thing in terms of, I have my own creative stuff. I have my own passion projects. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, getting them into festivals, getting them into contests, doing well in those. But at the same time, I've got the day job where I'm working on the more like self, you know, not self-promotion. I'm doing my job, but, it's still mm -hmm. a way to actively dedicate X amount of time a week to making connections, meeting new people, yeah. learning different parts of the business. And then on top of that, you know, I, I call them extracurriculars. I, I read for festivals. I, I'm in a couple writers groups. So I'm always reading other people's scripts and giving development notes because the, it is that kind of like one informs the other. And if I can't necessarily, you know, in the time until the writing becomes fully self-sufficient income, moving closer in my day job to say a creative development role is going to mm. just, keep, you know, it all builds on each other, just like moving to Sony and then to NBC got me out here to LA. And that was like, uh, you know, 40 chess of 2016. I was making moves to plan for what I'd be doing in, mm. you know, now 2022. It, it has kind of shown me that that, that long game does pay off and that, you know, the patience and strategy over the, you know, I want to move to LA and immediately sell a thing. Like that's not going to happen when it yeah. does happen to people. Like that's amazing. And that's then how do you sustain that? I'd rather bide my time, build my skills and step, you know, arrive at the time that I'm supposed to, which of course I hope is soon, but you know, <laughs> whatever happens, happens. I, I know I tell people in my friend group where 
if they're thinking about changing like positions or just a career in general, I'm like always, I always make it a point, like try not to make just lateral movements, treat each thing as a stepping stone. If anything, don't think like, Oh, this is, this is I like the water has found its level. This is where I'm at. It's like, use the skills you've learned to improve whatever your, it is you're going to do next, as opposed to just sliding off to a slightly different position or something like that, where it's not really an upgrade in some way. Yeah, exactly. I, I talk to a lot of folks about knowing when the right time to make a move is and mm-hmm. whether it's whether your current, whether one more year in the current role is more valuable, the same or less valuable than one more one first year in any other role. Sometimes mm-hmm. that, change of job gives you that momentum gives you you know we see we see folks boomerang all the time where they leave leave a they're in a position for five years leave for one year and then come back and get like the promotion or raise or whatever that that was eluding them for so long and all they had to do was step out and come right back um but sometimes it it makes more sense to stay and and, you know hit that three-year or five-year mark because it just makes you that much more valuable to a company that wants you to stay f- at, at their place for three or five years. Yeah. Sometimes like you see it in football or uh, uh, soccer rather a lot with uh, players will be signed to a team. They'll go out on loan to gain experience that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten from the team they're signed to. And they come back with that experience and they're able to benefit the team more than they, they did before going out and getting that experience. Uh, totally. And that's of- Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say that's like a thing that it's always in the back of my mind that if I completely crash and burn in the creative side, that executive search, that recruiting experience, that's not going anywhere. I could go do that mm-hmm. somewhere else in the entertainment industry. I could do that totally outside the entertainment industry. Uh, and yeah. that's a thing I didn't have in college or, you know, it wasn't part of my plan, but it's been a a nice safety net that kind of is through the the kindness of that first person who I connected with and helped me land that first role. Mm. You talked to uh, briefly about people that go out and, you know, they see success right away. And I know a lot of people would say, oh, that's luck. But part of it, too, is making your own luck. You know, you have to put yourself in a position where the odds aren't as stacked against you, I feel like, too. And, and that could go for anything, not just in, you know, entertainment or anything like that, but just anywhere. You know, it's luck might have something to do with it. But if you're putting yourself in a situation where the odds are more and more against you, it you know, luck is, is not going to be as a, a fair in your favor necessarily. Yeah, you're right. It's it's not a hundred percent luck and it's not a hundred percent nepotism in any of these cases. It's like, they, you know, cause they, everyone says it's who, you know, but, and that is very true, but it's not who, you know, on day one, it's mm-hmm. what are you doing to meet people and get yourself out there and, you know, expand, you can expand your network. Like I, I grew up in North Carolina. I went to college in North Carolina. Nice. I didn't, I didn't have entertainment industry connections or, um, you know, any firsthand knowledge, even secondhand knowledge. I had a passion. I really wanted to pursue it. I had internships that, that helped me, but ultimately it was, you know, the hustle. It was, it was going out there and, you know, like I said, that first job wasn't even remotely in the entertainment industry, but I didn't let Mm -hmm. that deter me. I didn't let that set me down a whole, you know, parallel path. I used that to then, angle my way into the entertainment industry. Like um, NBC has the page program. You see it on 30 Rock with Kenneth the page and every, it's super competitive. Everybody wants to get into it. It's kind of, um, we call it like a, a almost like a, a graduate program where you're, you're there for a year. You work in a ton of different departments. It's super formative experience. Everybody, it's super competitive. Everyone wants that experience. 
I didn't come anywhere close to getting it when, when I was at the right age to, to apply. And that kind of, you know, it sucks, but I still found my way into the company on a totally different path in a way that, you know, ultimately is, is the way that I'm, it's just going to be, if, and when I break in, it's going to be because I did it my way. It's not going to be because I did or didn't do the page program. Mm -hmm. Like, like you're saying too. I I mean, I know people in my, in my uh, sphere of influence, I guess you could say where their success. Yeah. There's luck involved with it too, but it's like, you look at their, their background, it's them working like crazy, putting in the hours, you know, setting themselves up where it's not that much of a stretch to understand why they were successful as opposed to just, you know, kind of meandering along and hoping everything works out, which I definitely see other people doing too, where, you know, I, that's why, you know, I try and follow in the footsteps of people I know or family members where, you know, it's been drilled into me since I was a kid by my grandfather, you know, as long as I'm working hard and making the most of it, it's, yeah, I might need some luck at some point, but it's not, you know, it's not like I'm desperate for anything. Yeah. It's like a success will come. But, you know, how much of it is somewhat luck-based, but not nearly as much as it would be otherwise if I just kind of coasted. Yeah, and I, I mean, like, I fully recognize the the privilege that I'm working with as a, a white male presenting person who was born in America, you know, not... I have all, you know, I'm fully physically and mentally able. Like, I, I recognize that that put me closer to the goals that I that I want to achieve than a lot of folks, and I don't take mm-hmm. any of that for granted, but... It also is, you know, there is a, a degree of strategy and hustle and work ethic. I yeah. have, have, you know, it, it feels like I'm still so young in my career, but I've been working since I was 14 years old. I've, I've done everything mm-hmm. from work at uh, like a private boat club to uh, work the drive through window at McDonald's. I was uh, a shoe salesman at Kohl's. I've uh, been a line cook. I've done so many different things that are so far removed from the stuff that I want to do, but... It's yeah. all formative experience. I, I wouldn't trade now looking back, I wouldn't trade any of it for anything else. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I've met people in the corporate world who haven't done jobs like that. And you can tell, you can really tell who has kind of come up through the trenches and who hasn't. For sure. Yeah. I mean, like I, our audience is going to hate me for bringing this up. We talked about this like a week or two ago. I forget which on the show here where like my background was like, I, I started when I was either 12 or 13. I don't remember. I was getting paid under the table working in a field picking strawberries. Then I worked at a, a restaurant as a dishwasher, then a grocery store after when I was in high school. And, you know, I, I moved up after I went to, to college and I, then I went, worked at the university and now I work in, in marketing. But it's like I I feel like there are definitely people I know they don't have that appreciation for a lot of the uh, the jobs that they never had to work. You know, yeah. they, they view it. You know, it's like, oh, that's, you know, it's a job for people that didn't want to try or something. I'm like, it's not really a fair view of it, I don't think. But Def- yeah, definitely not. And there's there's a it gives me an appreciation for all the jobs that, you know, I know I couldn't do. Like I, I was I think I talked mm-hmm. before about how, you know, executive search is, is a conversational job. It's not physical labor. Like there's there's something uh, really, really important to, to recognize there. You know, I think it's. Yeah. It, that is a privilege in and of itself that I, I get up on the you know fifth day of work in a row and I sit down at my desk in my apartment. I don't have to go out and you know pick strawberries in a field. <laughs> I, I mentioned too, like even that that got old very quickly. I thought I was yeah. going to love that job. You know, I'm a, I'm a kid. 
I'm like, oh, this is great. I get to go out, make money, fix strawberries. And then, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm eating the strawberries while I'm picking them. And I'm like making myself sick to my stomach because I'm just eating strawberries for hours on end. Jeez. That's, <laughs> that's yeah. what it was like working in food for me. Is like, like I would work at mm-hmm. McDonald's and your shift meal is McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it gets old. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I worked at a, a Mexican restaurant uh, when I was working as a dishwasher. And uh, that was that was horrible, <laughs> to say the least. It just you smell like crap every night when you go home. Yep. You're you're tired because you're on your feet the whole time. I have a yeah, I have a real appreciation for people that to do that. And I also understand like I, I think people underestimate the skill level that goes into. I, this is not me bragging or anything, but like sales and stuff like that in general. Any job that requires you to talk to people, and you know make an impression of some sort is very skill oriented. You have to be good at communicating with people. I think people don't realize the, uh, you know, there is a bit of a speciality that goes into that in being able to communicate well with people. And, you know, just like I said, I I work in sales. That's my frame of reference for it. But being like, for me, being able to, you know, sell a company on something that they might otherwise not have been interested in. I, you know, I value that. I value the people I work with that are able to do that at a much higher level than me even. Where it's, I'm like, it's it's an undervalued skill, I think, being able to communicate with people well. Very much so. Like, you'd be surprised the number of folks I talk to, even, you know, through the course of my work, whether it is just kind of an informational, a general chat to get to know them, um, or like I'm taking a reference call. And these will be folks who are pretty seasoned in their career. And I'm, I'm either mm-hmm. asking them to talk about themselves and what they're interested in, or, um, you know, their friend or colleague who has said, hey, this person can vouch for me. And sometimes it's like pulling teeth, you know, it's like, it should be talking about yourself and what you want to do should be the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. I think. Yeah. It, that, and then seeing the amount of information people actually have on their own field is interesting to me. Cause like yeah. you said, I work with a lot of businesses that don't know the demographics of their clients, which is fascinating to me. We, we had a discussion on this last week where I worked actually where I, I was asking uh, people, like, do we have detailed demographic information on, on certain clients? And they're like, oh, no. I was like, that's, to me, that's like step two, you know, yeah. of making a business is what, what business am I going into? What is the product I'm trying to sell? And then step two is who am I selling this to? And it's interesting to me how people don't uh, seem to pay as much attention as they might want to. And uh, I guess my question, too, is how does that translate to uh, like writing or film, uh, TV, anything in general like that. Yeah. So I, I'm sure you've heard like the one for me, one for them kind of thing, but that's really for like established filmmakers who are, who are making money on projects and can afford to make one, you know, quote unquote for me, that is not a commercial play. Um, in my case as a, you know, as, as a person, as a creative working in the industry in a non-creative role, trying to, trying to make that jump. I, have to really make sure that my voice and my style is first and foremost. And that's the through line of everything that I do. And so I, I certainly have like um, my, my main pilot that I'm pushing right now is, is a show called drop dead and and it's the pilot's doing pretty good. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I'd like to transition to that then too, because I did want to talk about that. Totally. So that's one where it's um, very much my style, my voice, but uh, it's an attempt at like an FX style show or a streaming style show. 
And so I've kind of tampered down some of my more surreal or absurdist tendencies um, for for that type of show that I think, well, I'm not necessarily trying to sell it or produce it. I think it's a calling card piece that says, this is my style, this is my voice, this is what I'm about. Uh, and this can open the door to all these other things. Whereas like my comic books or like a short film, all of that kind of stuff, I go, I lean even heavier on uh, the Frankie scale of like make this as as out there as possible because a short film is is not as much of a commercial venture because a comic book is going to have the bright colorful art that's going to pull someone in um mm. and so it's, it's like a little bit of a balance game in terms of thinking about the potential audience for a given piece and and what the reach could for it, the reach it could ultimately have is and kind of the through line for me right now is i want to have a a wide slate of projects that i'm working on because any one of those things could be the thing that breaks in and, and opens the door for everything else. Mm-hmm. I see. It's interesting. Like from someone, com- from my perspective, as someone who's completely outside of your industry, it seems interesting to me how, uh, you know, a writer's, you know, style can really affect a, or it can really be seen in a finished product. Like I think of like Quentin Tarantino, even though yeah. he has a variety of different genres of films that he makes, his personality very much shines through in all of those films that he makes. Even uh, Taika Waititi, as of late, I've seen a number of his more recent films, and you can kind of see his personality coming through a lot of them too, like the Thor movies, Jojo Rabbit. You know, it's oh, what was the other one? He did, he worked on uh the what is the vampire movie? I forget what it is. Oh, what we do in the shadows. What we do in yeah. the shadows. Yes, thank you. Totally. Yeah, and you, you can see that personality coming through, even though it's not the uh, crux of the entire production, maybe necessarily. But I mean, I guess it is. It's the writing, but. It's not the selling point, I guess, maybe. Exactly. Like I have a, um, I have a Rick and Morty spec script that I wrote. I have a Joe Parra spec script that I wrote. Um, I have a handful of sketches that are uh, in the style of I think you should leave. And while, I, mm-hmm. while I'm trying to demonstrate with those, like I can do all these other popular comedy voices, there's still connective tissue through all of those that, you know, mm-hmm. you, could, you could do dotted lines from, from that stuff back to my originals. And, and it, it should be pretty clear. Like, okay, this is, this is what they're about. This is what their style is. Yeah. Nice. Moving on to, uh, yeah. I wanted to, like I mentioned before, Drop Dead. You want to talk on that a bit more? Explain, explain that project to people. Yeah. So Drop Dead is a original dark comedy pilot. It is about a comedian who uh, has her big has her big break, completely blows it, loses her shit on stage, attempts suicide, takes a, a long stay in a hospital, and comes back to find that she's now built up this. Uh, extremely toxic audience from the set that went viral and uh, doesn't know what to do with it. Doesn't know, you know, what, what the next chapter of her life should be like. Um, And it's, it's very absurd. One of the, one of the uh, constructive criticisms that I I got, and and this was like, uh, well, I won't beat around the bush. This was considered negative feedback. I got on the script was that it felt like my main character was uh, from a drama and that everyone else around them was from 30 rock. And I was like, no, no, you pretty much nailed it. Like that is the tone of, <laughs> of this show um, because it's dealing with suicide and, and depression and mental illness. And some of these heavier uh, themes, that character, the, the protagonist, Sandy is, you know, she, her storylines are treated with the weight that they deserve. I'm not making light of these, these things, but at yeah. the same time, I'm not trying to make a depressing show. I'm dealing with heavy subjects, but it's, it is a comedy. I'm trying to make you laugh. And so uh, the other characters are all uh, very heightened and, and surreal and, and absurd and, and fun. Um, the engine for the show is, is essentially, at least for the first season, is the idea that 
in the lead up to the suicide attempt, she kind of, you know, wrapped up all of her unfinished business, whether that is like giving her phone away to a, to a stranger, giving, you know, all, all these different kinds of things. And then we get to see now in the present how that all comes back to bite her in the ass. So like the woman she gives her phone away to uh, starts texting Sandy's husband and then they become a couple and uh, she starts texting Sandy's manager. And then all of a sudden she has this career and this momentum and, um, you know, Sandy gets brought back to her old, you know, returns to her old life and, and finds that it's not even hers anymore. Yeah. Interesting. I, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty I'm, proud of that one. I'm, I'm, it's, uh, it's doing well in contests and festivals and it's kind of my, my main calling card piece right now. How does, so I have a question. You yeah. mentioned the, the festivals of how does one get involved in festivals like that? Um, in the sense of like submitting and, you know, being a part of them. Yeah. So over the past couple of years, uh, a website has emerged Coverfly. That is kind of the primary aggregate of, we'll say, larger festivals and contests, um, ones with more industry connections and, and outreach. Um, for example, NBC Universal just did their Universal Writing Program and, and Universal Animation Writing Program and, and um, diversity initiatives, and they ran all of their programs through Coverfly. So it's it real companies use this and they they they're Coverfly's whole thing is like we want to be the platform to identify and grow the careers of emerging screenwriters. There's also Film Freeway, which is a similar site that is a little bit more DIY, a little bit more uh, mom and pop in that, you know, you could start a film festival today. We could do it in the next 30 minutes and then have it up there and people could submit. Um, and so I try to do a balance of, of submissions to both. Um, because for me at this stage, any one festival or contest is is fine. It's really more that external validation of, hey, look, I, I won. Or, uh, you know, look, um, you know, some of these festivals are vouching for the quality of this script so that I could then leverage those wins and placements to get a manager or an executive or an agent or whoever to read my script. It's, it's really just about getting, you know, all of these things can hopefully get someone to give it the time of day to see that I have something in terms of voice and style and writing ability. And then maybe they want to work with me or, or just establish a relationship. It's not necessarily my expectation that this then gets the show sold or produced or anything like that. I think that's, you know, that, that does happen certainly, but I, I don't think that's necessarily uh, a realistic or worthwhile goal. Just like with the the career strategy stuff we're talking about, I, I take the same kind of approach to my, to my creative work. And so this is like, I, I put time and money and effort into this one um, drop dead to ideally build up enough credibility to get it in front of somebody who could do something with it, not necessarily mm -hmm. to cash in. I think speaking to that point too, it, it seems to be one of those scenarios where yes, you want to get it in front of as many people as possible, but the main goal is to get it in front of the right people. Exactly. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I, I post sometimes when I win on, on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, like that's going to my friends, um, mm -hmm. Facebook, it's going to my parents, friends. It's, it's not really going to do anything, but, um, on LinkedIn, where as you know, because of my job, I'm mostly connected with entertainment industry executives and um, my peers, whether that's assistants or coordinators or, or managers, like, um, you know, entry and mid-level career folks who might be the executives of tomorrow. 
that's where I can post something and know like, okay, this is actually, if it gets seen by a thousand people, it's getting seen by a thousand people who are in my industry. And I've, mm-hmm. I've been able to meet a lot of working writers and people who are at that next level or two levels above me kind of, and uh, really kind of establish like, Hey, I have something here, which they, that sometimes is obvious from the, the wins and contests, but then also they read it, they get to actually see for themselves if they like it. Uh, and then often we'll do like a script swap I'll get to read their work. I'll give them my honest feedback and, and thoughts and, and development notes. And, um, that, like I was mentioning earlier with the extracurriculars, that's something I take a lot of pride in. And so that's another great way for me to kind of really establish myself with these more seasoned writers to show that I do have something to bring to the table. I think a lot of times we find folks who kind of have like one script that they're, they're pinning it all on this one. And if that script is not great or not to someone's personal tastes, you know, what can you do? And so I try to offset that by having uh, a lot of material that I'm working on at any given time. And then just being really generous with my, my time and feedback. And I, I make a real concerted effort to help every project be the best it can be. Like if, if someone has asked me for notes, I have a responsibility to try to make this as strong as it can be based on what they've presented to me. Uh, and I treat it as seriously as if it were my own name attached to the project. Yeah. When you mentioned working with like more seasoned people, I know like from personal experience, when we have new people start, we tell them to seek out advice from a lot of the more tenured people, but at the end of the day to have their own system of doing things, their own way of doing it. Is it sort of the same with, with what you have as well? Yeah, I, I think so. Because I, I think that's it's similar to like just breaking in. There's not kind of a one size fits all solution, mm-hmm. but it doesn't do you any good to not learn from what's been successful for other folks yeah. as well. Like I, I heard um, Cody Ziegler and, and Ify Wadaway talk about this. They're two uh, really good writers and and uh, presenters. Uh, Cody just wrote the a recent episode of She Hulk, the one with Daredevil, which a lot of people oh, said yeah. was the best one. Um, but so they were talking about how do you break in? How do you get a manager? How do you get an agent? All this kind of stuff. And it was super helpful. But the most, the, my key takeaway that I took from that, that I, I, it's so good that I have to kind of even give them the, the credit for it. I, and uh, don't want to lose sight of that. This is their lived experience is that even with a manager, even with an agent, it's going to be your friends who are writers who help you get those jobs that break in. It's somebody gets a job offer. They can't take it because they're working on something else. And they say, Oh, Josh is perfect for this. Oh, Frankie's perfect for this. And then you get your first real opportunity. And, uh, then it's kind of, it snowballs ideally. Nice. Kind of changing tones a little bit. Yeah. You, uh, I noticed you, you do some like live stuff as well. You tried stand up before. Yeah, yeah, I've done stand-up a few times. I've been really lazy about it. Um, like? <laughs> sorry? I was, I was going to say, what is that experience like? Oh, it's... I've done stand-up in, in a handful of very weird scenarios, so it's like never the same experience. I did a set for about 30 um, students once, and I it's, I think that's the one that I have on SoundCloud. And okay. God, it was almost 10 years ago, but I, I crushed it. Like I, it's, I'm really proud of that set. It was a lot of fun. I had a lot of time to think about it. I had um, the freedom to, because it was kind of like a, not an open mic so much as everyone was going to take a shot at it. And we kind of didn't, we didn't put too hard limits on, you know, you have five minutes and you got to go. And so you're in and you're out. And so I got to kind of really get comfortable with that. Um, The other 
experience that I have. I did stand up on a student television show uh, for an audience of six people and they were not miked. So it's just me telling <laughs> jokes, kind of deadpan with no reaction. Like they're, they're kind of laughing. Sure. But there's no mics on them and there's only six people and we're in an empty studio. So it just sounds dead. Uh, it's interesting seeing like edits of that on like YouTube and things of famous comedians, but the audience laughter is cut out. It's basically it. it. Like I, I'm like, if I told weird. the same exact jokes on Fallon, yeah. it'd be, people would laugh. It'd be fine. But because it's six people not mic'd, it just <laughs> feels so awkward. And I didn't know. I like agreed to do it that day as a favor to a friend who was hosting the show. So mm -hmm. I really didn't have specific material that I wanted to work on. I was just like, I'm going to make the most of this by do it because I knew it was going to be recorded. I was like, I'm going to do different material. I'm not just going to do my same jokes. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was all right. Um, I've done a lot of open mics at bars where they're mostly musicians. And then they're like, and now here's stand up. And these people don't want this. <laughs> we had a, we had a manager that left he retired not like maybe six to eight months after I started working at my job at that time. And he thought it would be hilarious if we had like a roast, like a comedy central roast essentially, but for him. Yeah. And I, I was like, Oh, I'll take part in that for sure. I, I love this. This is going to be hilarious. And it was a combination of, I guess me not understanding the assignment and that I went in way too hard. <laughs> and then a lot of the jokes and references I made, nobody got because the next closest person aged to me, I'm 28. The next per closest person aged to me, I think was 54. Jeez. So it, there's a huge gap. Yeah. <laughs> huge age difference. It was horrible. It was, it was kind of sickening <laughs> looking back at it at the time. I loved it. It was, I didn't, I didn't care if I was getting laughs or not. And then I went back and I was watching the, someone in the had recorded it on their phone. And I was like, this is, this is hard to watch. This is terrible. <laughs> It's it's funny. There's like such a real like there's the generational gap, too. But I think even just within a couple years of age gap, there's a different yeah. set of references and, and material that people kind of are tapped into. Like, I'm also 28. And when I first started working uh, in the professional world, it was the same kind of thing where I was the youngest person by probably 10 years at my first job. And they're all every day at lunch. They talk about the TV shows that they watch and all this stuff. And I, it was just stuff that I was like, this is not even remotely on my radar. I don't know anyone yeah. that is watching. I won't even say an example of the show because it was so long ago, but you know, whatever the show is, I don't know anyone watching this. And then it would be like, every person in the office watched it, but I had never met anyone outside that did. It was just bizarre. It's interesting too. I don't know. I, I, I don't have a good reason for it. It's, it's interesting that like the majority of people I work with, I mean, we are a team of eight. I would say like six of them are super into like star Wars and Marvel. And that I'm not really. And so I think most of the things I watch, not that I, I don't really have a lot of time to watch a lot of things, but most things I watch in a reference, they just don't, they don't watch it. They don't know anything about it. And I don't get what they talk about. So even like when I do go into the office and I make like an off joke or something, it just goes right over everybody's head. And I'm, I just sit there in silence and I'm like, all right, I should stop. <laughs> yeah, kind of like, Star Wars and Marvel have become so ubiquitous that everybody is, you know, everybody's marginally a fan of them. But if I had to say, like, am I a fan of either actively? Like, the answer's not really, no. I haven't watched a Star Wars show in a minute. Um, I think since, like, Mandalorian Season 2. The last I Star Wars I watched the MCU stuff. But, like, those are... I watched was uh, Revenge of the Sith. When that wow. came out. 
Yeah, I saw Revenge I did, of the I Sith. I did see the Mandalorian. So. That's to be fair. You're right. I need to mention that. Yeah, Mandalorian was kind of uh oh, is this gonna be a thing again? And then <laughs> I was like, oh, all right. I kind of see where the guardrails are on this, and I'm out again. Yeah, and then with like the Marvel stuff, I you know I've seen first Iron Man. I saw the most recent two Thor movies and uh, what the Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, and that's about it. I think I see most of them, but like they're they're candy bar movies. They're not anything. Like they're fun, I'm sure, but (laughs) I feel like an old man at times, which is weird. I'm just like I have I have no understanding of what's like popular movies. I know that they're popular, but like I don't know anything about them hardly at this point. Especially the way um, this is not me saying it's a bad idea. But like the way they're kind of drawing on these lesser known characters yeah. as well and bringing them to the forefront, I'm like, I've never heard of this in my life. It's, yeah, it's 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 tough because like the, you have to either really push the character and then you risk people mm-hmm. feeling like you know that the character is getting pushed too hard, or you don't yeah. push them enough and then they don't feel essential, so people don't care. Mm-hmm. And but like, yeah, like you mentioned earlier, and not that like, with She Hulk, not that she's like an unknown character. Like it makes sense that she'd be famous, but like I don't. I don't view her as being up there with like Batman and Superman. You know what I mean? Like it's not quite as well known probably. No, but I also think like Captain America and Iron Man weren't there until, until the movie. So like, I got to give Marvel credit for, for recognizing any one of these, you know, B and C list characters could get elevated. Like we're seeing that on, on DC side with guardians uh, of the galaxy too. Yeah. Guardians is a great example. Not like unknown, but I mean, they were pretty damn close to unknowns. Yeah. Um, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a much more of a DC Comics fan uh, than a Marvel Comics fan. And, and with the movies, that's kind of like a wash. But, um, <laughs> you know, like Black Adam is coming out next week and it's going to be huge, uh, hopefully. But like, that's a character that the average person would have had no I've idea about. And now is going to be considered an A-lister because of The Rock. Or you mm-hmm. have um, John Cena as Peacemaker, which, again, huge DC Comics fan. I talked about Teen Titans in the beginning. So this is like a lifelong you know, a fictional universe that I've just had a passion for my whole life. I didn't, I'd never heard of fucking Peacemaker until John Cena <laughs> was going to be in the show. Uh, and like, again, like all of a sudden one thing can elevate that character. And now he's not an A-lister, but you know, he's way bigger than he ever would have been. And, and for sure, that could yeah. happen again and again and again. Both universes seem to have innumerable characters they can draw upon if they want to as well. Yeah, the benches are so deep. What was the Werewolf by Midnight? I think is what it's called. The new. Yeah, that's all right. It's different. It's I, black and I white. See it, but it's, an, I, it's like I 55 minutes. Yeah, I saw a thing where they had. Uh, was it Swamp Thing? Swamp Man. Uh, it's, it's Man Thing, who is. Man Thing. Okay. Marvel's yeah. version, essentially. Uh, well, it's so the guys that made Man Thing and Swamp Thing were roommates making them at the same time. <laughs> It's like very, very funny. And they both kind of said, all right, we kind of both drew the same guy. Let's just take him in different directions. And they kind of did, but not really. I have no idea how he fits into the greater overall canon of, uh, of Marvel, but like, it's interesting to see them using those sorts of characters that outside of films wouldn't otherwise be elevated to such an extent. Probably. I don't know how popular werewolf by midnight is, but the fact that they made a, a film out of it, I don't know, it speaks volumes to their ability to draw upon lesser known characters. Yeah, I think it's cool to do like a Halloween special. I know they have the mm-hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special coming out. And I, I think that's smart to to take risks with these kinds of content that have that holiday hook because, yeah. you know, it's I'm not this type of fan. Again, I wouldn't 
even self-identify as, as like a MCU fan, but there are going to be those people that are going to watch that werewolf by night every Halloween because it's the Marvel mm-hmm. Halloween special. They're going to watch Guardians Christmas every Christmas. Well, I think it's holiday, but every, every you know, every mm-hmm. every holiday season because that's the Marvel holiday movie. Uh, and I think that's smart cynically it kind of for the Disney long game, because I don't know how many of these movies are annual rewatches, really. It is interesting how quickly some of the characters, like some of the big movies, like the characters and things like that, like the Iron Man movies that were, were huge, you know, Captain America did really well, Thor has done really well. It'll be interesting to see the longevity of a lot of them. Because obviously, how long Marvel's been around, like the, the MCU's been around like 10-ish years now, I think, right? Since 2008. 2008, okay, so 14. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see the longevity of some of the films that are coming now. Because I feel like they're at the crux where... They do have a lot of their big draws have kind of gone to the back burner a little bit as far as like the original Avengers team and things like that. And they're bringing yeah. up the new ones. They're still getting tons of views. They're still wildly successful. I'm curious as to how how long uh, they'll be able to last with the second string of characters coming up now. Yeah, that's why I they recently moved um, Armor Wars was going to be a TV series. Now they're making it a feature mm-hmm. film and it's going to start on Cheadle and um, the fantastic Yasser Lester is uh, writing it. And I think that's such a smart move because as a TV show, who cares? No one's going to see it. But as a feature film where you're saying like, hey, here is, if you're wondering what's been up with like the Iron Man corner of this world since he died, spoilers, uh, here's all those characters together in a feature film, the extension of their storylines. And I, I think that's smart and it, it gives it that same level of ideally attention and, and time and, and marketing push for those, for that audience. Like there are, there are people who got, who jumped on with the original Iron Man and kind of only stayed in that corner of that world. And that's fine, but then give them a, you know, give them a product if they're interested, if, if that's the type of movie that would get them to come back after being kind of a lapsed fan, go for it. Uh, that's why I'm glad that they're doing um, Captain America four too with, with, with uh, Anthony Mackie as Captain America uh, because they did, Falcon and the Winter Soldier TV series, and that's fine, but I don't think it did the type of, you know, viewership numbers that that, that character deserves. Like, you're, it, it's cool that you're going to have, um, you know, a, a black Iron Man and a black Captain America, and they are just, they are those characters. But don't pigeonhole them to just being on the, on Disney Plus shows. Let them be feature film characters. I think I mentioned it to my dad the other day, too, where instead of, a lot, I feel like, one of the issues they could run into in anything now is they use a lot of shows like that of like a uh, She-Hulk or, you know, Falcon vs. Winter Soldier. A lot of them are used almost as setup yep. to the larger picture, as opposed to being a solid standalone product. Not that they're not good. Like I said, I haven't seen them. I don't know. But like, I, I feel like that's what a lot of it is leading into now where they're using a lot of TV shows as setups into their main products where I feel like they should almost, I mean, again, I'm outside my area of expertise, but you, you think you'd want to focus and make sure everything is super well polished and great as a standalone product, as opposed to a throwaway bridge to your main, from one main product to another. Totally. And and you can, the, the older films, while they, while they have the interconnectedness, it was interconnected in a clear goal that it's building towards, not necessarily, mm-hmm at the detriment of, of these films as standalone pieces of content or pieces yeah. of art. Um, 
you know, the originals, it was, okay, we're introducing each Avenger and their world and their lives, and then we're going to bring the team together. Then it was, okay, Thanos is coming, The you know, the, this world is getting more attention on a cosmic scale and there are going to be consequences. Okay, we're building to that. Now, everything feels like it's set up for something, but there's not those clear markers of here's what we're building towards. It's just kind of there is the multiverse, which, okay, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, there's no narrative tension there. It's not like, yeah. I guess maybe it's that there's going to be consequences, but like every single one of these movies kind of feels like they're introducing, you know, we're fucking around in the multiverse and things are never going to be the same. Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, yeah. like it's, uh, but then everything is seemingly fine at the end. <laughs> like maybe there will be consequences, but I don't it know. Like it's like the the original like the starting films too the interconnectivity was relegated more towards post-credit scenes or like small little cameos if anything as opposed to the over like the, the larger picture it, it seems like everything now is is the entire plot is based around connecting one product to another yeah like um i think i heard that the new captain america is going to bring back the leader who uh was in the 2008 Hulk movie, like oh my god, I don't, I'm, I'm sure there are fans which that are excited it? for that, I but remember which one that was? He's like the, he's not even the main bad guy. He is like the secondary scientist who is like texting Bruce Banner and trying to help him understand his genetics or something while he's on the run internationally. So a, a minor character in a minor movie <laughs> is coming back, and it's going to be one of those things where. You know, is that worth it? Is the juice worth the squeeze to to bring back this character that you didn't do much with then? I don't know. They're making money hand over fist, so I really can't complain. Um, I'm just bitter because I wish it was uh, like five DC movies coming out every year that took over (laughs) the monoculture. They do seem to struggle with figuring out how to set up their universe. It seems like they rushed from, you know, they had a Batman film, they had the Superman film, and then right into justice league obviously they had the batman versus superman but then they threw wonder woman in and then it was straight to justice league without any sort of build up to it i i think those Zack snyder films are just a, a awful hot mess and i <laughs> i have a friend who really changed my perspective on Zack snyder as a as a filmmaker which is that he has this uncompromising specific vision for what he wants to do with a film or mm-hmm. with a film universe and he delivers on it. He absolutely makes the movie that he wants to make, whether it is the six hour version of Justice League, <laughs> whether it's the three hour version of Batman versus Superman. He makes these massive movies that tell these, you know, larger than life stories. But what he doesn't get is that his version of these characters is not what anybody wants to see. Hmm. It's it, like I don't turn to Superman to see him be sad and murdering people or you know it's like the everything that's good about the dc comics universe in my opinion has not been translated to to screen yet by any of these projects and i i say that as someone who really liked the christopher nolan batman films and and really liked the new one even um i like that that one felt the closest to taking a comic book and making it of film whereas like the christopher nolan ones felt like what if there was a real guy who wanted to be batman Mm-hmm. Like I joke that you could, you could introduce Batman the fictional character into the Dark Knight trilogy as as like oh yeah this guy's trying to be Batman and everyone go like okay yeah got it it, yeah. it like almost plays the same um, the comic booky nature of the newest one I really liked 
Um, and I, I'd say um, credit where credit is due. James Gunn's The Suicide Squad uh, also felt Second very one. comic booky. Yeah, the newer one, which I, I think he should have called it The New Suicide Squad. Some, uh, it, it is but, confusing to an extent. Like I, I, yeah. I was actually super interested in that when it was getting ready to come out. I was like, these names are way too similar. People yeah. are really going to confuse these. I think if he'd called it the new Suicide Squad, it would have solved the marketing issue of like, oh, it's a new one. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's a joke based on what happens in the movie, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, that's yeah. worth checking out if anybody hasn't seen it. Um, Peacemaker is also worth checking out. It plays in the same world. Um, they're both a lot of fun. And John Cena is really good. John Cena is a legitimate actor in a way that even other big name wrestlers turned superhero stars who I won't say but we all know are not as good as john cena is in peacemaker like he actually brings a compelling moving performance to a character that could be very one note you mentioning with the zack snyder not getting it you know he, he makes these big films he wants to make but it's not what people want to see as i haven't seen justice league mainly the i mean i haven't seen either version of it i probably won't watch the four hour long version or however long it was but like even the marketing for that confused me to no end because it seemed like he has like a whole Mad Max portion in there at some point. Yeah. And I was like, I have no idea what's going on, even from the trailers or anything like that. It really honestly put me off as someone who's like an, a very casual comic book film viewer. I was I, like, I don't know what to make of this film. I don't blame you at all. When when the Joss Whedon two hour version was coming out. I knew I was like this as a comic fan. I was like this sucks. I don't want anything to do with this. I'm not seeing it, <laughs> so I didn't see it. I was like, I'm I'm good just never seeing this movie. I'm it's not gonna knowing how knowing how bad it is and in what specific ways won't bring me any peace or joy. Uh, but then when the six hour version was coming out as a as a filmmaker and as a fan, I was like, now this is interesting because I want to see, no. you know, as close to as possible the four or six or however many hour. I think it's like. Yeah, whatever. The long ass version of the movie that he turned in. And then I want to see the two hour version that WB hired someone to cut together because I want to see what what was the raw material Joss Whedon was working in to fuck it up so badly and turn in. I mean, Joss Whedon, I'm not a fan of. But he turned in garbage anyway, um, not with an easy task. Like It's hard to take someone else's raw materials and, and then craft something. But mm-hmm. it watching his version after watching the full extended Snyder cut, I could see what raw material he had, what stuff he went back and added and shot himself. And uh, it was just a, a genuinely interesting way to engage with a film that I, I still ultimately like it was a waste of, of a lot of time. Um, but there's, I would, I would do that for other films. I'd love to see, you know, directors will talk about oh i shot a x number hours version like taika talked about oh i shot a three hour version of um thor love and thunder and people were like oh release it release and he's like no way that's not the movie it's like Mm -hmm. i i found the movie but i made a lot more stuff and i chopped it all i chopped away everything else that wasn't good enough Um, there's a reason to have deleted scenes i mean yeah you you shoot stuff and you realize it this isn't going to fit within the narrative It, it doesn't make sense or it's not valuable enough to bother including at times i think there's an angle to to be said there's something to be said for like um you know shooting only exactly the material and shots and takes that you want so Mm -hmm. that a studio could not come in and 
edit what you've made into something else. You know, they can't Frankenstein it into a new movie because you get one take. Like, here it is. This is the version of this scene that's in the movie. Um, but when you're playing with very expensive, uh, multi-billion dollar IP, mm-hmm. you don't have that kind of freedom. Um, I don't know. That It's it's really interesting to me to compare the Zack Snyder DC stuff, which I think was a bad idea from the beginning that just crashed and burned and got messy and toxic and uh, spiraled out of control to the point that they're still in the kind of throes of, of damage control and resetting and the hierarchy of power in the DC universe is about to change and all that kind of stuff. But uh, to compare it to like the Disney star Wars films where they did not have a plan. And then they also just still crashed and burned. Um, it's like choosing someone with a bad plan and having no plan at all are very similar trajectory. <laughs> yeah. Like with DC, it, it just seems like they didn't know what they wanted to do with it. Like they didn't know the tone they wanted to set. Cause I know, like I said, even as an out, someone who's an outsider of this, it seems like they went in with a more like a darker tone to it. Saw how well Marvel was doing with their, you know, bit more lighthearted tone, and you know, tried to switch over to that last minute because it's based on what I read. That seems like what happened to the first Suicide Squad. It was supposed yeah. to be a bit darker, and then they're like, "Oh crap, we need to shoot some more comedy scenes for this," and it, you know, kind of became a jumbled mess. It's just it's just so bizarre. It's not the way that I would have gone about that at all. Like there's I don't know, you're doing yourself a disservice by jumping into a universe where the characters have been around for you know, I guess the Ben Affleck Batman has been at it for maybe 20 years. It's like, well, mm-hmm. I get like it's almost it's a fool's errand cuz people don't people don't want that. You know, you kind of want to see those peak superhero moments. You don't necessarily got to see the Waynes get killed every time, but you want to see yeah. Batman meet the Joker. You want to see him meet and train Robin. You don't want to see him be like, Oh, yep. Robin's already dead. Joker. And I don't really talk <laughs> like <laughs> there's like, and the added like Mad Max stuff with Jared Leto's Joker is so bad. He literally says, uh, we live in a society. <laughs> I, I did see that scene. I, you, I looked it up on YouTube cause I was like, I'm curious to what this whole Mad Max thing is. And, and that's like bizarre. It's I, just another weird move from Zack Snyder to shoot like a, almost teaser for a movie that he knows he's never going to get to make. <laughs> it is, is fascinating. I don't know. We'll see what happens with the flash movie. That's like the last, the last real remnant of the, the Snyder era. Um, Especially with Ezra Miller and all of his things he's had. Yeah, going. Such a disaster. I, I, the movie is t- apparently testing as well as the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy, which I will see about that. Test audiences don't always know what they're talking about. But that is why WB is very scared to do any sort of recasting and uh, is trying to push Ezra on this apology tour. And uh, <laughs> it's so bizarre. And I, I don't know. I, I'm very surprised that they would shelve Batgirl, which I know is like a specific tax loophole bullshit thing, but <laughs> they would shelve that film and just be full steam ahead on the Ezra Miller, Ezra Miller flash film. Yeah. Bizarre. I don't know. Have, did you watch any of the, uh, house of the dragon or rings of power shows? No, I was just talking to a friend yesterday about how I haven't watched either of them yet. He was making the pitch for me to watch, uh, the house of the dragon. Yeah. And <laughs> he was comparing and contrasting it with game of Thrones, trying to say the way that at least in, in his take, um, that because there's a female showrunner, 
she's bringing a different kind of perspective. And then because you have a lot of the same directors from Game of Thrones, there does feel like there's some visual continuity there. Mm-hmm. Um, and his kind of like pitch for the, for the way the first season has been playing out was pretty compelling. So I, I'm on the fence about checking it out. And then Rings of Power, I just have to spend more time and, and give it a real shot. Yeah, I, uh, I'll i start with House of the Dragon. Like That's way more of my... I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. I have the entire, I have the books that are out so far. I've got all of the side books, all of the spinoff things. I'm fully invested into it. And so I went into it like, oh, please don't screw it up. And mm-hmm. so far, I've been really enjoying it. I like it a lot. Nice. Um, and then we have Rings of Power, which... Like, I don't, I don't want to bash on it too much, but I've really, we, my girlfriend and I watched it and we're laughing at scenes that are supposed to be heartfelt Oof. because it just doesn't play super well. And I'm, I might be a bit of a cynic if I'm being honest, but I, it, I think there's a fine line between slower pacing and dragging things out. Yeah. And that's, it's, for me, it's been the latter, you know, like I gave it the benefit of the doubt the first like two episodes, even three where it's like, I understand you have to treat this as though it's a completely new IP that people have no idea what's going on because you're going to get a lot of viewers that maybe haven't watched Lord of the Rings or aren't super invested in it, especially since it's supposed to be like a prequel. There's a lot of people that aren't going to know the lore. So I get that you have to set it up and I get that you have to establish the characters and all that and it takes time. So the first two episodes, I'm like, all right, it's a little slower, but that's fine. You have to take the time to establish everything. But then when you have episodes three, four, and five all taking place and there being really no plot development, that's when I kind of started getting frustrated with it. Yeah, that's like, like an uh-oh moment. I was like, yes, things are happening. But if you look at where everyone is at the start of each episode and where they are at the end, there's virtually no change. And that's what was getting on my nerves a little bit. I think I'm trying to remember which episodes are which now. I think episode six you know, stuff started happening and maybe seven was a, a bigger episode. I could, I could be adding an extra episode in there. I don't remember exactly, but it kicks off. Uh, I forget if there's eight. I don't, I don't remember, but there, it finally kicks off after what seemed like a huge lull. And then the pieces start moving. And then, you know, finally, like, I feel like the entire first season is them using eight episodes or whatever to actually set a stage for the real show, which is coming in future seasons. Interesting. That's the best way I can explain it without spoiling anything. Yeah. Because it's interesting that you say, like, even by, like, episode seven is only finally when it feels like, okay, some plot is moving. Um, yeah. I've found that, in general, pilots or first episodes of shows um, have not been as uh, urgent mm-hmm. in the streaming era because they're kind of really expecting you to just, in a binge model, just roll into the next episode or, yeah. um, you know in a weekly model, it's, it's not as tied to, you know, the, um, you know, the show's produced. It doesn't matter if the first episode mm-hmm. necessarily does the job and previously, you know, might've needed to as an actual pilot. Um, and then on top of that, the, the, the release model that I've really kind of found works for me and I, I wish more shows would embrace it is the split between kind of binge and weekly where mm. they'll drop, two, three, four episodes at the start and mm-hmm. then start doling them out week by week by week. Cause then I think the it's show gets to stay in the conversation. Yeah. yeah. Like the show is, is it has a cultural moment, water cooler kind of stuff, but you can kind of get people on board as far as you need them to. 
uh, in terms of, you know, if the first three episodes are all set up, that's fine. But then, you know, people are going to get them out of the way and then they're going to come back each week as long as new things are happening. Uh, that's what Peacemaker did. And I thought it really worked because I think it's it is kind of very slow at the start. And you're like, what is this show? And then it gets going. And you're like, OK, now now the show actually starts. We basically needed, you know, three episodes of, of setup to then have five episodes of payoff. Yeah. Yeah, I, that was my problem with the whole. Like I said, there was one episode of reasonable payoff. It wasn't over the top, but it was like okay. And then I felt like it just kind of coasted to the end of the season. Like there, you know, there's some revelations or whatever, but it's like I felt like it it needed more of a payoff at the end of the season, like at the end during the finale. I felt like it was just kind of like okay, we're just gonna you know simmer down now. We're having one big epi- like one big payoff episode, and then simmering until through the end. In general, I feel like the Amazon content, and this is not Lord of the Rings specific, but it all feels very kind of like beige to me. I don't know how to describe it. There's like a there's like a veneer of like something's I don't know. I guess invincible is the only thing I think of when I think of like bright and colorful and Amazon. Mm -hmm. And the rest is kind of just like humdrum. It's weird. It, It almost feels like to an extent they're just throwing a ton of money at stuff and hoping it sticks. Yeah, because like visually, like the Rings of Power, it looks fantastic. Like the production quality is top tier for sure. But I feel like it just it it didn't get the pacing right. And I feel like I'll, while the characters are somewhat memorable, I couldn't tell you the names of most of the people in the show. You have like Galadriel, you have like Elrond and Durin. I really could I couldn't really name anyone else in this show. <laughs> like and I've, yeah. I've watched the whole thing. Like I, it's just most of them aren't super memorable characters. There's a benefit to the show being as expensive as it is. Looks like I'm sure you do see the budget on screen in terms of how Absolutely. how gorgeous it looks. Um, I really appreciate the practical effects too. In yeah, that, like they have like orcs running around and they're actually actors that as rock. opposed to CGI, which infuriated me when I watched the Hobbit movies. It's distracting. It was, it was all CGI. It was super distracting when they're in the barrels floating down the river yes. and GoPro footage. Yes, that took like, me what out. What is this? <laughs> I was like, yeah. I could literally shoot this. I have that camera. <laughs> and, yeah, and it's such a jar. It's like not motivated at all. It's like, oh, all of yeah. a sudden we're seeing a first person perspective of this <laughs> barrel roll. Um, yeah. yeah, but I, I think Rings of Power is a show that it's too big to fail. Like mm-hmm. the criticism you're having of the pacing and everything. I, I would I think hope they that, that Amazon the end of the season, yeah. if I'm being honest. Yeah, so I'm hoping coming into season two, like they're going to be even more course, not course correcting really, but like yeah. they should be able to kind of, you know, play the game. I just, I think it was almost a mistake releasing at the same time of House of the Dragon coming out because yeah. even though they're very different tones and very different types of shows, they're going to be compared because they're both fantasy shows. You know what I mean? 100%. And yeah. Putting it out at the same time is like House of Dragon, it's also somewhat slower paced. But there's more it's the plot itself is advancing quicker. And I don't know, I feel like invariably the the two are going to be compared. House of Dragon is doing really well. Rings of Power is getting it's definitely getting review bombed just for just because people enjoy doing that. Um, I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as people say it is, but I don't think it's, in my opinion, as good as uh, House of the Dragon right now, at least. Um, But yeah, I think I think they should have moved things along a little bit quicker in rings of power because they definitely really took their time 
the whole season was basically just a setup to the actual main story they're trying to get to. And we talked, I mean, there's something to be said for like, there are people who are going to turn into house of the dragon just for Matt Smith because they're fans of him mm-hmm. and he's a good actor. Uh, yeah. and, and it's going to be, I imagine there's some overlap with the, with the pre existing game of Thrones fan base, but there are totally going to be people that didn't watch Thrones, but are like, I'll watch Matt Smith in this setting. Yeah. Yeah. It, I don't know. I, I like it. I, like I said, I, I liked ring of rings of power too. I just wish it was, if, I wish they had gotten to the point more, especially if you're calling it rings of power and, you know, people are sitting there waiting for, you know, the rings to show up or whatever. And it doesn't seem rele- relevant. A lot of what's happening. But yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see where they go. I'm I'm curious. Um, They've definitely got time. I think they said they want to do like five seasons. Yeah, I did. I did like with House of the Dragon too. They're like, yeah, it's they're not. They're one. They're not trying to rush it too much, and it doesn't seem like they're also trying to drag it out too much. They said it's probably going to be three or four seasons, and in my opinion, I'm like that's perfect. You know, it's it's one longer book that takes place over a number of years. You get to where you're going to go. You're not dragging it out. You're going to end it at a reasonable time as opposed to what they did with Game of Thrones where, you know, the showrunners wanted to move on to make their Star Wars money. So they rushed it right at the end there and everything kind of collapsed in on itself. Yeah, that that's I mean, the the schadenfreude of watching them, you know, shoot themselves in the foot with Thrones, lose Mm -hmm. the Star Wars deal, pitch that horrible HBO show that then, you know, was was that the, the show bat- they're going to have like something about slavery or something? I forget what yes, it was. Yes, it was called Confederacy, and it was going to be just what if the South won, which is like the worst oh, right, pitch right. for a show I've ever heard. <laughs> um, and it was so even the initial announcement was so problematic because they're they're two white guys, and so they uh, <laughs> partnered with um, uh, a couple of married writers who who were both black, and they were basically like, "We're lending our our voice and authenticity to this project," and you know, we're going to be represented in the, the creation of it from the get go. It's like, but the idea mm. itself is just, you know, you're stepping in shit. Like it's not worth platforming that in any way, even as There's like no way to, to make that not it. have yeah. controversy around it. Yeah. Like it's like make, make man in the high castle, but a million times worse. And, <laughs> um, you know, HBO kind of just was like, yeah, it's, it's not happening. And it's like, yeah, it should have never been announced. Like, woof. But, um, you know, it just goes to show you like it's it's both like getting a good project like game of thrones but then it is following through and uh sticking the landing not just trying to go make your money Mm -hmm. yeah i think the the two of them are now going to work on the three body problem over at netflix yeah which will be interesting i think they honestly i think they actually did a good job with game of thrones when they had content yes the tv they were great at adapting, but when it came to actually creating the content, not necessarily from scratch, but essentially because they didn't have all of the materials there, that's when they really struggled because they didn't have the pacing correctly. They didn't have, you know, all the material to work with. I mean, even they changed a good amount from the books into the show, but they did it in a way that made sense. You know, there were characters that didn't appear. You know, they combined some character arcs and stories to adapt to TV. To TV. And I think they did a good job with that. But the second, like I said, once they've lost, you know, content to adapt from is when they really started to struggle. And since the three body problem, I think is fully completed work. Yeah. If, you know, it, it, hopefully they do a good job with it because I'm super interested in seeing that adapted to television. Yeah, I, I 
I think starting with a work that's fully completed and, and staying the course is the right move for them. Like mm-hmm. they, they're not talentless hacks. They do have things they're bringing to the table and a track record of success. And they just have to not make the same mistakes and yeah. play to their own strengths. And I think, um, both the Netflix release model and the three body problem as source material. That's all. Those are all good matches for the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see that becoming a very big I mean, franchise might be putting it too much. Cause I think it is like, it's like three novels. So mm-hmm. I don't think it'll become a, it won't become a game of Thrones level thing, but I think it could become a, a one of the bigger Netflix shows if it's done right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'd be interesting how, uh, to see how they handle it. I imagine it's going to get review bombed by a lot of people angry at the ending yeah. of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Which is unfortunate, but we'll see what happens. Cause like I said, like it, I, the way that the show itself ended and then the way they handled it was horrible. Like I'd be slight as like I said, not my industry, so I can't say for certain, but like if I'm like a, you know, Netflix or whatever, and I see these guys coming, it's like, I need someone that's willing to stand by their work as opposed to, Yep, we're just gonna put it out and then run away. Like I, I don't know. Something about that didn't set well with me as a fan of the show. Yeah, or I think they, it's it's not fair to the fans to yeah. to just kind of like you know basically veer into the median and crash the show and be like, <laughs> all right, that's it. Here it is. We're done. Um, and I think that F- and the way they didn't do any interviews or anything afterwards, they literally yeah. just disappeared. They're like, yeah, we're gonna be sitting on a beach drinking sangria or whatever they said. I forget what it was at the time. It's like, that's that's tough. That's why I like the HBO took a good approach to the different spinoffs. They're like, we, we have a handful of different ideas. Let's see which ones we mm-hmm. really think could sustain. And, you know, some of them they did pilots for and the pilots didn't move forward. And they, they easily could have just forced fed all of them. And mm-hmm. instead, they're like, OK, House of the Dragon is the one we're going to prioritize for now. And uh, they're giving it the time and space to be part of the franchise, but very much be its own thing as well. And I, I think that's to their credit. Yeah. Yeah, it, I I feel like too. It's again, it's because they have all the source material they need for yeah. it. Like I, I feel like sticking with the ones that they have completed works for is could work out better for them. Like they, I know they're talking about doing the Jon Snow show, which could be interesting. But I feel like a lot of people are going to view that as oh, we're making a show so we can fix the ending to Game of Thrones. Yeah. You know they like they have House of the Dragons to work on now from uh, Fire and Blood. They have the book uh, A Night of the Seven Kingdoms which they could make a, a show out of it. That's got a, a Duncan egg or two, uh, two historical characters in, in Game of Thrones. And then they come way after House of the Dragon. Like that. I don't know. I could see that as being a spinoff show that they do as well. Be interesting to see. But I don't know. I did want to touch on one other thing before yeah, I up here. Totally. On your website, you had like under your live performances, you did a sit down Q&A with Nathan Fielder. Yeah. What was that like? I'm, I'm a huge fan of Nathan for you. Me too. That was, yeah, was, yeah. So that was for the Nathan for you season four, uh, like premiere fan mm-hmm. event in Brooklyn, New York. It was, uh, 2017, I want to say. And, and Nathan was doing like a, a tour of events around the country where they were, uh, playing, uh, you know, it started before the season aired. So it was like playing a bunch mm-hmm. of episodes, and then um, playing new clips and then um, taking questions from the audience members. And the game was that if Nathan was going to take a question from you, 
he needed to bring you on stage and interview you first so that he could feel comfortable, feel like he knows you. And then you can ask a question. Uh, and I was the second of three people to go up uh, at that event. And it was kind of one of those moments where I didn't know if I wanted to raise my hand. And I kind of just felt <laughs> something in me of like, I'm going to raise my hand because he's going to pick me. And then he did. Um, and I was like in the back of the audience. And so he brought me on stage and he was like really busting my chops and roasting me. And I was trying to <laughs> hold my own and play along, but also be funny on my own and, um, you know, not try to embarrass myself either, uh, which is like a lot of different things to balance on top of, yeah. you know, speaking to one of my heroes, a living legend uh, in front of a huge crowd of cool, judgy Brooklyn people. <laughs> um, and it was fun. Uh, he is he is that guy like it's uh the nathan that we see in the rehearsal i think is is closest to that was not what the show I, saw. I was expecting but i love that too yeah like he's he's uh it's that balance of like he lets you a little bit in on the real person a little bit more than nathan for you and that's what it kind of mm -hmm. felt like at that at that live event but it's just like a another layer of the nathan character in terms of of irony and and fun and yeah. um like, you know, obviously everything he was saying was in jest. He, the only context he knew of me was that I was a fan of his enough to pay money to go to this thing and see him yeah. and, and wanted to go on stage. Like he wasn't, you know, people give him a hard time for his style of humor and, and putting people in uncomfortable situations. But I was uh, like an eager, willing participant. It was the coolest thing I've ever done. Um, and then I had a ton of people afterwards come up to me and be like, you did great. Like that was awesome. Well done. And I would, you know, they wouldn't have had no one, no stranger had to go out of their way to, you know, give me props if they didn't genuinely appreciate the time <laughs> that I was on stage talking to Nathan. So that's like the coolest thing I've ever done by far. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I, I saw it on your website. I was like, I got to ask him about this because that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I, my girlfriend doesn't like, she doesn't like his show. I, get, mm -hmm. I don't know if she doesn't get the humor. It's just not her thing or whatever. So like when we do watch, like i I've rewatched it. I don't know how many times. Like I'll watch old episodes of Nathan for you, and she didn't get it. And then for, I don't know why we watched the rehearsal, and she liked that a lot more for some reason. Interesting. But, but with that show, it was, like I said, it was not what I was expecting at all. I thought it was be like a weekly. This is the person he's helping rehearse. Yeah. And then next it'll be the same thing, sort of like Nathan for you, but you know, rehearsing for things. And then when it ended up turning more into more into him, like raising the kid and helping the Angela, I think is the woman's name, mm -hmm. like with raising a child and living in the house. I was like, this is vastly different from what I expected, but it's still entertaining. Yeah. I'm, I'm so interested in what the initial vision for the show is. Like, I, I'd say that's like very much a, a semi-scripted show in that. Yeah. I think there are moments where um, producers for Like there's the bit where Angela talks about her like least favorite movie or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I think the producers had just chatted with her and, and got that information and knew it would be interesting and then prompted Nathan, hey, ask her about her taste in movies. I don't think he knows the answer. Mm -hmm. You know, I, like, I do think some of those moments are genuine, candid, you know, reactions and surprises, um, you know, through the kind of reality TV or any kind of TV lens of the moment is has been set up and prepared for in a mm -hmm. way that the rehearsal is constantly demonstrating through its very premise. Yeah. But, um, those are the moments that I think really come through. Like the moment in Nathan for you, where the guy uh, 
at the gas station talks about drinking the grandson's pee is an all timer because Nathan breaks. He's like, what, He's are, like, you what are you talking about? about? Yeah. <laughs> amazing. Uh, and that's how you feel watching the show. Yeah. yeah that, uh, that one is like, I love uh, the ghost realtor. Ghost realtor is so good. That one is like where the guy's doing like the exorcism on the woman and he's just standing there like dumbstruck by what's happening. <laughs> Nathan has a new show coming out, um, I believe, on Showtime. That is him and one of the Safdie brothers and Emma Stone. And it's similar to the Ghost Realtor concept where Nathan and Emma Stone play a couple who are uh, HGTV hosts, basically, moving into a, a home that they want to flip, but the home is haunted. And it's, I think it's like a scripted show. I'm not, I will, you know, we'll see what it actually is when it comes out, but the curse. Yeah. The curse. I could only think like, okay, this is, this is the escalation of the ghost realtor concept and idea in the way that the rehearsal is an escalation of finding Francis and smokers (laughs) allowed the episode of Nathan for you, where he turns a bar into a uh, like avant-garde theatrical performance. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah, there's moments like that where he introduces the bartender to the actress who's going to be playing her, and it's mm-hmm. like a body double practically. Um, <laughs> and he just lets them kind of interact. All of those are like, I think, the very clear, like the light bulb moment for him of like, well, I can kind of do this formula again and again, and and do variations on a theme and, and dig into deeper places. Uh, it kind of mm-hmm. reminds me of when you find like a a visual artist um, in my experience through Instagram where you see something and you're like, Oh cool. They make like, uh, like plates stitched together and like, uh, I don't know, like they're making this whatever type of art. And then you go to their accounts like, Oh, they do um, every possible version of this. That's what they do. (laughs) Uh, And that's kind of how I feel with like Nathan is like finds a thing goes, okay, I'm going to exhaust this kind of creative space. Yeah. In a good way. It's, it's fascinating his show and like what he's able to pull off with it. Like I said, with the rehearsal too, in particular was one of those things where it's like, I don't know where the line is between scripted and unscripted in this show anymore. At times it's, it blurs it so much, you know, for me at least I was like, I, I know at some point here he's, he's doing something on purpose, setting this up because he knows what will happen to an extent, but I can't tell what it is anymore because there's, he just keeps adding more and more layers of ridiculousness to what's happening on screen. Yeah. And I, I do think like there's a lot of discussion about the ethics of, especially that final episode and, and uh, his relationship with that child um, mm. in terms of the kids understanding of what is fake television and what is real life. And yeah. uh, I do fully believe that that, you know, wasn't necessarily planned. I think that was Nathan being willing to put himself under that, under that spotlight and, and kind of interrogate his own, methods of comedy and production because the show in the beginning, and maybe this is me, you know, um, taking the bait, but in the beginning, the show demonstrates all the ways that the rehearsal is more mindful and cognizant of how do we engage with these child actors and bring people into this world through the presence of their parents and the signing of the waivers and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, in a way where it's babies, they don't know or care. And I, I think he genuinely learned slash realized or confronted the idea that you know a five-year-old has a very different scope of experience in the world than an infant and that is going to be an imprinting impactful memory um and then there's the other piece of like you know parents that are willing to 
to put their kids through this and and not do their due diligence and in, in understanding what they're signing a child up for. Um, as much as I do think, like he, you know, Nathan as the puppet master of that whole situation orchestrated those events uh, for the sake of comedy. I don't think he could have specifically targeted a kid whose dad wasn't around and who wouldn't understand the, yeah. re, you know, the game of the situation. I think that is like a, um, an unfortunate consequence of the concept. And I, I, yes, there was value and merit in then exploring that space, but uh, you know, I can't go as cynically as to say that, that that's what he intended because the, mm-hmm. the kid is, is, is a victim in that situation even though I think Nathan does as much as he can to kind of smooth that over. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a fascinating show. I'm excited to see where he takes it in the future. Yeah. I'm a huge, like uh, Andy Kaufman fan and, and Nathan mm-hmm. pulling on those kinds of things uh, is so good. And then even with this one, he's even, he's even pulling on uh, Charlie Kaufman through kind of like the synecdoche New York element of the one-to-one recreations, which just add, like it's just adding to every gag. It's not really the point of it, but it just helps. Like the the episode where they're in the raisin canes, just so that they could sponsor the build for that episode, was great. Yeah, yeah. It's I don't know. He I I feel like he has one of those things where it's it's a very unique show. Like I yeah. always find it interesting how people will break out and come up with a completely separate thing because he's he got a like a bit of his break on John Benjamin has a van, I believe. Right? Yep. Yeah. And then what was I can't remember the other guy's name that he has a show where it's just him in New York City, I believe. It's not Nate Filler. It's yeah. Yeah. John guy. Wilson. John Wilson. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. That that was very interesting too. watching that. It was. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting seeing the different takes on it and uh, the, the the ways people are presenting their their unique projects like that and seeing the results. Yeah, Nathan uh, executive produced How to with John Wilson, which uh, is on HBO Max. Another another great show if you like uh, Nathan for you or the rehearsal. Like I liken How to uh, with um, like as as when you work in New York, live in New York, commuting, you might see something on the subway or on the street that is like the craziest shit you've ever seen, and then you go in and you tell your coworkers about it, and like it's the only thing you can talk about all day. This is like thirty minutes of those moments back to back to back to back to back. Yeah. Um, and I, I really like the way that on John Wilson, they'll take this unrelated footage or like a clip that is kind of funny on its own and then juxtapose it with narration that adds even, even more of a joke or sometimes adds a joke where there's not one, uh, inherently. And I think you can see that style then get reapplied in the rehearsal. And I think it really works and it helps you know, it helps shape them into tighter episodes of television for the rehearsal, especially because Nathan for you had the format of, I'm going to help this business. I have this structure. We're going to do the, we're going to do the thing. And then we're going to talk about at the end of like, did you like it? Will we do it again? Blah, blah, blah. The Mm -hmm. rehearsal doesn't have that built in. So the narrative and the narration really have to do a lot of the work to, to make it feel like a cohesive whole. And I think that kind of juxtaposition of narration with what you're seeing in the John Wilson style really, really helped the rehearsal. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know, I'm curious. I'm interested in, in a lot of those types of shows coming back. Cause like I said, I my girlfriend watches a lot of like the Netflix, uh, uh, like drama series. She likes like the haunting of Hill house style show. Yeah. Is it Mike Flanagan. Is that his name? Yeah. I think, yeah, his show. She just watched, uh, what's it called? The watcher. 
Ooh, that's really interesting. That's an interesting show because that's that's based on a real a real situation uh, in New Jersey, not far from uh, where I lived when I was in New Jersey. It's pretty crazy. I think they they've taken a ton of artistic liberties creating yeah. the show, but the concept is still neat. Yeah, the um, family sold the family who it happened to sold the, sold the rights to Netflix, and they were like, um, "Please change the name, change the family, uh, but whatever." And they like cashed out, which yeah. it, this, the the real story like. It's, I, don't I have think sympathy moved into the house in, in the real story. Oh, wow. Yeah, I have sympathy for the real family for sure. But uh, the sympathy, to be honest, only extends so far because like they're just insanely filthy rich. Like <laughs> you can like in the articles, they're like, yeah, we had to just we didn't even move into the house and we just we're still paying rent yeah. and property tax and blah, blah. And it like has the total amounts. It's like, well, that would absolutely it's insane amounts of money that. Uh, could be someone else's entire livelihood. And it, and this was like their extra stuff because they weren't even able to move into the house. Yeah. It's like Woody Harrelson in Zombieland wiping away yes. his tears with money. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they still live in that town, which is uh, pretty wild to me. I would, I would have moved. If I was going to not live in the house, I would not live in the town either. I'd get out of there. Yeah. That's just me. <laughs> maybe they didn't want to leave because that's obviously what the watcher wanted. I guess. Yeah. It's such a weird story. I, I've, I've got bits and pieces of that show. She binge watched the entire season yesterday. I think it was only like seven episodes. So I, I got bits and pieces that I kept wandering back and forth from the office here onto the kitchen and, and back and forth. And then as I'm not mistaken, by, like the, the main real life twist was that the family who sold them the house had yeah. also gotten like a threatening letter from this guy and just didn't right. tell anyone. <laughs> and then they found out and they're like, okay, well we're suing you because you sat on that information. Yeah. Yeah. It, what I gathered walking back and forth was, you know, everyone could be like watching you and rich people have it hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's not in like the combined 20 minutes that I saw passing through the living room. <laughs> but yeah, it, I don't know. There's a lot of interesting, interesting shows coming out that I'm excited for. And uh, I don't know, especially going into the holiday season, we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's, it's it's always a good time for content once the fall hits. And like mm-hmm. as much as there's just an overwhelming amount of content to sift through and there's stuff that, you know, doesn't get the push that it needs or whatever, like beyond that, all, you know, filtering out all the noise, there's still never a shortage of of good stuff to watch. Like I mm-hmm. I'm I'm not one of those people who could ever be like, oh, I don't have anything to watch. I don't know what to do. Like. There, I, my list of shows I need to watch, movies I need to watch, games that I have purchased and not played or even opened <laughs> is so long. The backlog yeah. is so long that I can never uh, be kind of content with boredom. I'm like, I have to, you know, I have, a, I just watched It Follows for the first time. And I was like, I waited almost nine years to see this movie. And I just, <laughs> out of for no reason other than I just did not block off the two hours to sit down and watch it until I saw Smile. And everyone said It Follows was, the better version of smile. So I was like, okay, time to see if follows. You actually watched smile. Yeah. Smile. Well, I, I have AMC a list, so I'll see pretty much everything in theaters. Um, okay. Like for the Marvel movies, I'll see them, but I'm seeing them in 3d IMAX and um, did, trying to make it fun. You, how'd you like smile? So uh, the ring scared the shit out of me as a kid. I saw it when I was eight years old and uh, it genuinely traumatized me for a long, long time. So smile being kind of in that style was very appealing to me. Um, the original short film 
Laura hasn't slept is like 11 minutes. It's really good. It's that core scene that we see in the trailer where the girl goes in and talks to the main character who is the therapist and says like, Oh, I can see it. Blah, 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 blah. That, you know, is they built the whole marketing around it. That short film is so strong. And I wish that all of smile was that strong. Um, and especially the ending needed to be like another standalone short film, basically. And the ending, I think it, it was bad. Their marketing for it was interesting because I saw the people like standing around at baseball games yeah. or something, smiling and stuff. I was like, it's interesting. I don't know that it gets me to want to see your film though. I yeah, I I I was seeing trailer for Smile all year, and it ultimately it was good, but it, it wasn't it wasn't the best horror film I've seen this year. Like I, I really loved Nope. Um, I have a soft spot for Men. I thought Men Men was really good. Um, I liked Smile more than The Black Phone. I thought The Black Phone was a better movie, but Smile was scarier. Uh, and then I saw Barbarian twice in theaters. That is by far the best horror film to come out this year. Barbarian is so good. It's I can't say, I won't say anything about it because you should see it blind, but um, blind and with a big audience if you can. It's very, very fun and very um, not at all what I expected based on the trailer for the movie. Okay. I, I feel like I'm so hit or miss on horror movies. It, like... The, the, my go-to example is with uh, uh, Insidious, the first one. Okay, I really liked the first like eighty percent of that film, where it's like there's like spooky things happening, they can't explain it, and they're just trying to figure out what's going on and how to keep themselves safe. And I was all for it. And then at the end, when he goes into like the the other realm or whatever, I was that's what took me out of it. Like yeah. I'm I'm all for. I like the. Uh, uh, what is it the, like the secrecy surrounding what's actually happening i think i enjoy that more than having like the the monster or like the scary part of it so to speak just right in your face like i feel like that takes away from it totally in my opinion yeah i think a lot of movies like the if the answers are less exciting than the questions then mm-hmm. maybe don't give us the answers like um yeah there's a, there's a great movie called mandy which uh stars nicholas cage i only mm-hmm. going into it the only thing i knew was that it's the Nicolas Cage chainsaw movie. And so it's like, okay, I'm, I'm in. And the second half of the movie is the Nicolas Cage chainsaw movie. But the first half is this trippy, meditative, occult, uh, like tone poem. It's very challenging and unconventional. And you don't get any answers as to what's going on. It, it's almost it reminds me of Hellraiser at times. It's got like really crazy visuals, no explanation, barely uh, any kind of like baseline reality to kind of like pin to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you start to get answers in the second half and you get these characters who go from being these otherworldly, scary, you know, full of potential boogeymen to being like, oh yeah, those are just these like bikers who took some bad acid. And it's like, that's not an interesting <laughs> answer. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't care. That's how it was with Insidious. Like I said, I was like, oh, you don't know what's going on. You have like these form, like the form appearing in the painting behind him. All of a sudden, you have like the guy pacing back and forth outside the window. And then all of a sudden he's in the room, the kid getting possessed or whatever. I'm like, that's creepy. There's no explanation for it really. And then it's like, oh, it, they're just in like a foggy version of their house. Yeah. And there's like a demon guy. And he looks kind of weird. I was like, he's literally having like a fight scene with this thing. Like it takes the horror elements away from it. Yeah. I was like, man, I just, I wish they just ended it 
and left it like up to the imagination. Cause I think, I think a lot of times that it's almost a better way of doing it in any film. Like it, you don't need to answer every question as long as it's not incredibly relevant. Necessarily. Yeah. Like I, like, I, you, I, go ahead. I was going to say, like, if you leave it up to the imagination, the audience is going to fill in whatever they think the most entertaining solution is to the yeah. answer. Like they, they get to fill it in in the best way possible. Totally. Like I, I love hereditary. It's, it's probably my favorite horror film of all time. Uh, certainly of the past few years. And I think the ending just gives too much of a explanation that I'm not that interested in. Um, there's a beat right before the ending where um, mild spoilers for hereditary, a character has jumped out of a window, broken their neck, a dark thing takes over their body. They kind of like lurch and get back up and start staggering towards a treehouse, then start climbing up the ladder of the treehouse. And there's this otherworldly red light coming from it. And it's spooky and it's scary. And I wanted it to just end right there. I didn't know or care what was in that treehouse. It was scary. It was fun. It was like, while you know, the, the ambiguity of, is he possessed? Is he alive? What is he doing? Was fun and weird for me. And then in the actual movie, he just like climbs into the treehouse, and there is an ending that gives like a lot of lore and, and context to the rest of the film that you're like, I pretty much got it. I didn't need to see this scene play out. I could have just assumed that's the scene that was going to play out. Um, the flip version of that, I think, is uh, like a, the get out ending where um, you see the red and blue lights flash and Daniel Kaluuya has this like look of horror and the audience feels it in their pit of their stomach. Where it's like, oh no, the cops are going to come. They're going to see this black man. They're going to arrest him. They're not going to believe him and his life is fucked. Uh, because that's an all too real situation. And then the reveal of no, it's his friend from the TSA and and, it, and he's safe and it's okay. That is the way to have your cake and eat it too. Because every person in the audience pictures the bad ending when they see that happen. And then Jordan Peele goes, okay, but it's a movie. So here's here's the good ending and you can leave and go back to your lives and not just like, be in a shitty dour mood <laughs> like if, if get out had done the alternate ending i think people would have just been like well yeah that not that the movie sucks but like that chain of events does happen and that does suck yeah the example i was thinking of too with not uh or the example of leaving it to the imagination is like in pulp fiction where he never shows what's in the briefcase yeah it's like yeah, there's, no sh- there's nothing that. he can show he can like put in there that makes it better than what the audience comes up with on their own yeah, like, yeah, it's a perfect thing. It's going to be like, oh, okay. Yeah, there's there's no answer that's satisfying. You know, people say, oh, it's mm-hmm. gold. Who cares? Oh, it's Marcellus Wallace's soul. Okay, that's interesting, but that's not in the movie at all. You know, like that's mm-hmm. not in the text. So, the, it, you know, it's just bright. We don't get to see it. All the characters agree it has a value. That's fine. That's all we need. And the funny thing is seeing the behind the scenes thing where it's just a light bulb. It's a light bulb, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a great community episode where they do, um, that's true. Yeah. Fiction birthday party. And then it's the, it's, it's not even the real, yeah. And then it's not the real briefcase briefcase anyway. It's like, it is just a prop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It, I don't know. But anyway, I've, I've had a blast talking. I don't mean to wrap it up so suddenly, no but worries. Yeah. if there's anything else you wanted to, to touch on before we call it. Um, no, let's say folks can, uh, find me on, uh, Twitter or Instagram. I'm I'm at Frankie the fourth with the number four, um, on Twitter. I'm at classic American cool on Instagram. 
Uh, and then if you want to see uh, my old stand-up, my comedy videos, I do music videos, I do a lot of different stuff. Uh, it's all at www.frankiecampusano.com. Uh, and you can tell that I am uh, an elder millennial because I still say the www. You should start adding on the HTTPS. <laughs> yeah, I'll give the full the full <laughs> URL. Yeah, all the links will be in the description as well. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, man. I appreciate it. It was a great time. Love Thanks for having me, Josh. I'll be back anytime. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And again, everyone, you can go check out deadjustproductions.live. That link will be in the description as well as all of our, our sponsors. Go check them out. And uh, yeah, it's been episode 144. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time. See you.